Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is, I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, the morning after one of the most bizarre photo ops ever. You people thought the whole upside down photo op with the tear gas was bad. Just a dress rehearsal for what we saw last night. Look, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking with Andrew Weissman, who is one of the, uh, Robert Mueller's uh, top deputies, who's out with a fantastic new book, Inside the Mueller Investigation. But we we had to start with this. And Tim Miller um, you, you took one for the team by watching this, the full cinematic rollout of the Orange Evita, produced, directed, starred in by Donald J. Trump, a show of real strength, man. What did we see last night, Tim? Yeah, I was, I didn't take one for the team on purpose. I'm just doom scrolling like everyone else. Uh, you know, I had, I had texted, I texted Bill Crystal, and I, I said, this is the weirdest shit I've seen in my entire life. Um, and then I, he said, that's a tweet. <laughs> I was like, I'm officially broken by this. I'm broken by this press conference. You guys might have to take it all from here. Uh, so I, I, w- I was watching it live. It just felt like I had to, I had to riff on it because it was, it was from another, it felt very un-American, you know? And I don't mean, I don't mean that in the sense that like Donald Trump has taken our refugee count down to zero, down to basically zero, and that's un-American, and that's outside the American spirit. I, I meant it felt like it was from Uruguay or Argentina. Um, okay, so the, it, but the whole point was to show strength, right? I mean, there were some people in the New York Times has a piece yeah. that there were some folks in, in Trump world who were thinking maybe he could go for the sympathy vote, show a little bit of empathy. But as you and I both know, in, in Trump world, empathy is for cucks. So he who are those consultants? Like, uh, how I could, are they, have, do they have, do they have like, the, do you remember the movie Memento where you have that short term memory loss and you have to like write notes to yourself? Like, maybe, maybe they have that. I mean, do Trump. they know their client? Yes, the, the the humble, sympathetic, empathetic Donald Trump. But I mean, as as we predicted on the podcast yesterday, he went for the strong man, the strong man re- return. Yeah. You know, he got the Michael Bay film of all of this, which, which is, I mean, got the whole power moves, the helicopter, music, pageantry, the guy on the balcony, dramatically removing the mask, and then he's standing there, looking very orange, by the way, which you riff on, and very orange. He's breathing. Talk about the breathing. What was going on there? I mean, he's breathing like somebody who had been a smoker for 40 years and lost a bet and had to run a 5K and then gets and then and then walks up and then walks up a flight of stairs and ha- and has to stand in front of the cameras. I mean, he's heaving. He's 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 doing these massive heaving breaths. You know, I, I said that there was one right before his, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about his very extended um uh, salute. Cadillo salute. Okay. He takes this one massive breath. It's like the breath you take if you're about to get into a holding your breath contest as a kid um, underwater. I, I mean, it, he looks horrible, and and it's just. I, I mean, 
uh, I think that somebody somebody wrote me afterwards and they said it's, that, that it's it's called accessory breathing. It's like you know where because obviously he's got this damn deadly virus in his lungs, you know, and so he's like using all the rest of his of his chest and abdomen that he doesn't usually use to breathe. I, 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 you know, I, I no, I was I was worried. I mean, honestly, um, there was a couple of things. I mean, taking off the mask, going into a White House that is being ravaged by the pandemic. I mean, some of the quotes from the White House staffers are, are just, I mean, pretty lit. I don't know if you saw it in, in Axios this morning. Um, you know, it's insane that he would return to the White House and jeopardize his staff's health when we're learning of new cases among the senior staff. This place is a cesspool. But the whole point was for him to be strong, right? You know, but it, it just, it, everything about this feels wrong. I mean, you know, the guy says, I get it now, but he demonstrates he doesn't really get it. He said, maybe I'm immune to the disease, but he actually got it. And and then he says people shouldn't fear the COVID-19. I, I mean, play the, play the soundbite of that. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Mm. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Yeah, he's not out of the woods now. And then you saw this morning he's reverting to the talking points from March. Flu season is coming up. Many people every year, sometimes over 100,000, despite the vaccine, die from the flu. Are you going to close down our country? Are we going to close down our country? No, we have learned to live with it, just like we are learning to live with COVID in most populations far less lethal. So he's basically reverted to the talking points that he was using 210,000 American deaths ago. Yeah, and and Charlie, I, I just I do think it is worth just taking a moment to um to really think about the other people who are impacted by this. Like you said, he's not out of the woods. Uh, you know, I think that somebody posted a tweet yesterday, that, like looked at the Herman Cain timeline, and oh, you know, yeah. not to be macabre, but right, this is how this virus works. I talked to for a different article for the Bulwark where I wrote about the timeline of his testing. I talked to a friend who who treats COVID patients and and said, you know, usually there's a first wave where you feel sick and then you feel better, and then for some people, not all, for some people, there's a second you know kind of wave that comes in, which is a lot more de- which is a lot more deadly, um, and and that's what happened. Herman Cain. And so uh, he's uh, he's not out of the woods, but then there are all these other people. Uh, you know, I just saw Michael Shear, the reporter at the New York Times, says his wife has COVID. Now he got it from this little White House cluster, little quite big White House cluster. And, and when I was on the podcast last week, you know, we went on this rant that, w- that was uh, correct about how um, he was recklessly exposing the, the White House staff to this. And we didn't even know at the time how many people he's exposing to this. And they won't, they're going to cover it up. They said that the CDC can't contact trace. Think about all of the people that work at Bedminster, the people that work at the White House, any the cab drivers for people that, that, that left that disgusting buffet when he knew that Hope Hicks had coronavirus that he went to in, in, in New Jersey. 
um, you know, the the re- people that work at restaurants. I mean, there's that's how this thing works. It's a contagion. So you know, it, it isn't just Tom Tillis that got it right. Now that we're rooting for Tom Tillis to get it, but there are all these other people that have been exposed to this as a result of his of his recklessness, and then he's standing up on the balcony, you know, like like this D-list dictator talking about how strong and great things are while other yeah. people are getting sick around. Well, he, he was really less a Vida than he was sort of the orange Duce, but I don't want to go there with, with a whole Duce. But he, he, you know, he didn't look strong to me last night. I mean, he, he looked reckless. Yeah. He looked sick. I mean, he looked like a guy whose presidency was really in the final stages of, of decadence here. And of course he's pushing this line now that just really quick on that, Charlie. That's yeah, like, now that's, he's, yeah. he's minimizing it. I'm sorry. Yeah, just really quick on that last point though about how weak he looked, and that is the un-American part of this, right? Like this is, this feels, you know, we see often these strong men abroad who you know are weak but have these grips on power because of the nature of their, you know, government and the nature of the traditions, um, and and you know, oftentimes it's almost a cliche, right? It's these very weak people. Um, it's these people that are endangering those around them, but that who have to project this faux strength. Uh, you know, JVL wrote about this with Putin um, and comparing it to Trump, and uh, it's not something that we've had here. And partly because of the way that our system works, like you don't, you can't really be a strong man, right? If unless you have a, a completely pliant Senate, which it turns out that you do, um, and and yeah. so I mean that is the weirdest thing about all of this is that he's. Is that it's in this tradition? It's something that we're familiar with, but it is just not we've never something that we've seen. Yeah. So I, I I I tweeted out something. I'm gonna I'll make a PG rated for for this for the podcast. That and you tell me whether you think I'm right about this or not, because I'm I'm trying to think why it went so sideways for him, or at least in, in my in my view, your view. Um, you know, Trump's BS works as long as he understands the con and he knows who are the marks. But but it starts falling apart when he starts to believe his own BS, when he starts to think that the fictional version of himself is actually real. And it's it's like he's gotten sucked into the movie that everything's a show for him and everything. And, you know, him being the Superman and he's playing that. And and it's 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 like, no, this is this is this this could go terribly, terribly wrong, not to mention the message he's putting out. I thought that was a great point. And just this this Supreme Court versus his response to COVID is the exact example of this, right? Like he doesn't care about Roe v. Wade, you know, in his heart, but he knew his marks were the evangelicals and he had to win them over and this was his deal. Like that was that was you know, Trump making a smart deal. Whereas this is exactly what you're talking about, the situation that he's convinced himself. I thought that was a, a, a really um, uh, astute observation. You uh, also have this this timeline um, on the bulwark yeah. today, which is very, very valuable, sort of going back about what what we know and what we don't know. Um, and, and sort of the main question is when was he tested and la- negative tested, right? I mean, we just don't know yeah. when the timeline, when was he infected? What did he know? When did he know it? Um, and, and this, this strikes me as highly relevant information right now. Yeah. The crux of this is there's this gap between basically the Coney Barrett event that was clearly, you know, if not the nexus, uh, a vector of this um, uh, this very weird community spread that we have in our nation's capital right now is that that was a result of our president. Um, I mean, it's just unfathomable. Um, and 
We do not know if he was tested basically between that day, Saturday, and then Thursday when he tested positive for the virus. The the White House won't say. They had to um, give Cleveland Clinic a confirmation, but it was based on the honor system that he had tested negative within the past three days. He claimed that he... Um, didn't have the time to get tested between when he landed in Cleveland and the in the debate, though there was a four-hour period, and it's a 15-minute test. So he clearly did have the time. So the question is, uh, did he know he had it at some point? Was this just, again, recklessness? He didn't like taking the test. It's annoying to get it up your nose. But again, in the conversations I had with uh, with friends who, who, are, who are in the medical field, basically their take is like, you know, sure. You know, this is anything's possible, right? So that that something you got a couple false negatives, etc. But but if you're in a situation where him and everyone around him is getting tested every day, somebody would have come up positive what before they were symptomatic. It's just it is a very bizarre situation that nobody would have come up positive before being symptomatic. And 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 I think that the answer is that they either knew or they were being reckless and not testing. And 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 because of that, because of their lack of management of the virus within their own White House, um, that caused a lot of the spread. It's going to cause unnecessary pain and death. And so it's extremely relevant to find that out because, you know, obviously it it further exposes, you know, whether this was just negligence or, you know, something far worse. And and now it seems like they're doubling down on the recklessness. It's like, what is your strategy going to be going forward? It's going to be, we have to live with it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't let it um, dominate our lives. You have people like Tommy Lahren who are tweeting out that Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden putting on a mask that he should just you know, might as well just have a purse. This whole notion that somehow it's emasculating to have. A, it. So in other words, some of the all the worst elements of Trump's failure to take this seriously are now front and center with four weeks to go in the campaign. It is kind of mind blowing. And he doesn't have, there is no strategy, you know, that's Charlie. I mean, he, this is just total gut. He's watching cable and he's not liking what's on there. And and he's trying to come up with something to fix it. And and he doesn't have anybody around him who can control him. I know. I just think that's all this is. All right, in, the, in a few minutes, because, I, because we are going to be getting to uh, Andrew Weissman's uh, rather amazing book, um, which, as, as I mentioned when we talked about it last week, is, 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 what, is one of those books where I had to put it down and take a deep breath every once in a while because of the, the sort of the lost opportunities I'm talking You've about. You've got to ask him about the financial side of this for me, oh, Charlie, I know. too. I'm just well, so that's fascinated it, by the financial yeah. side. And, and that's what's so dispiriting because a lot of us thought that they were looking at it and that th- that's where the, the gold was all along. So um, new polls out this morning. Um, yeah. I think the CNN poll is probably an outlier, but it is stunning. Uh, 57 to 41, 16 freaking points. Yeah. Um, and that was conducted entirely after the first debate and mostly after the president's uh, uh, COVID-19 infection was made public. Uh, lots of bad news for the president in this poll. 69% of Americans say they trusted little of what they heard from the White House about the president's health. Only 12% saying they trusted almost all of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, this is, uh, you know, again, uh, you don't want to put too much weight on one poll. Uh, the state polls are much more important, but, uh, but boy, it's, uh, this guy's been on a. It's it's been a long losing streak for Trump right now. When we're we're four weeks out from today, 
Yeah, this is feeling a lot like 2006 with the Republicans to me, Charlie. And, um, you know, like you said, well, we'll see. And and I think there's a lot of sense that maybe Trump had this high floor. And I always wasn't sure about that because there were always this significant number of people who said they were voting for him but had an unfavorable view of him. And that if you could get those folks off of him, then his number could drop into the low, low, low 40s or maybe even high 30s. And um, I think it's possible that's happening. In 2006, at the height of the Iraq war, um, after Katrina, after the Harriet Myers debacle, the floor fell out from under George W. Bush. He'd been reelected. This was his second midterm, but but Republicans lost everywhere. We didn't pick up a single seat. I was working a House race that year. Um, it was we were the second closest in the country to picking up a seat. Um, I think we lost by four points. Um, and and so I, you can see that happening. And here's the big difference, though, to me between 2006 and now, is that we were allowed to run away from. Bush's mistake. Interesting. You know? And I am just, it blows. I know we talked about this at Donald's. No one but is he's at 41, Charlie. Yeah. He's yeah. at 41. I had a I had a I had a I had a Republican elected official texting me about how crazy this was yesterday. And I'm like, what are you doing? What what are you doing? You know, and I think everybody is so has so much they remember Access Hollywood. They don't want to get out there on this ledge. But it's like the president is infecting your friends, your colleagues through his recklessness right now with a dangerous disease. His management of this is a disaster. This this crazy, bizarre show last night, not a single one of them is like, you know what, guys, I'm cashing my chips in on this. Not one. It is so bizarre. You know, I'm I'm shifting my attitude toward the race in in, in this respect. I've always thought um, that that the race would be decided by voters who were exhausted by Trump. Mm Mm-hmm. That they just, they just, they, they, you know, rather than asking themselves, are you better off than you were four years ago? They would say, can I take four more years of this and and decide that? So I thought that the, 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 the driving underlying factor in this campaign, the result was going to be exhaustion. I now think I, 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 that's still true. I think a lot of people are still exhausted. Don't get me wrong here. <laughs> but, but I also think that right now what you're seeing is disgust. That yeah. people uh, have been exhausted, but now that they are they are actively repelled. They were actively repelled by his debate performance. They're actively repelled by the way he's handling this particular issue. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. It's hard for me to imagine how he turns that out because I, I'm sensing a, a level of visceral anger um, that that I'm not sure that I picked up on quite before. And I'm not talking about the partisans, the usual resistance types. I'm talking about people who are going, you know what? I couldn't visit my mother in a nursing home and God damn it, look what he's doing here in the Rose Garden. Uh, I, I've suffered all of this, you know, for for the last six months and, you know, where I had a relative who died of COVID-19. And now he's saying basically don't fear it um, because he was strong and he beat it. Well, what does that say about the people who didn't? So we're, we're going to see we're four weeks out here. It's not over. Lots of things can happen. But I do think you have this combination of exhaustion and disgust that really um, seem to be driving some of these numbers right now. Totally agree. So excited to hear the Weissman interview. I, okay, I'm happy so I could jam in and discuss this just absolutely bizarre scene of of, of malice and recklessness and fake strongman attitudes last night. Well, I really appreciate it, Tim. And uh, I, I think I might have mentioned to you that uh, our podcast that we we taped on Friday was our all time most listened to podcast in the history of the Bulwark Podcast. 
We had 2.3 million downloads last month. So um, thank you for everybody for that. But so Tim, cool. you were you were you were the star. Um, thanks thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. But our special guest today is Andrew Weissman, who is out with a new fantastic book, "Where Law Ends: Inside the Mueller Investigation." And uh, Andrew. Uh, teaches uh, criminal and national security law at uh, NYU School of Law. He's a partner at uh, Jenner and Block. And um, most importantly, for for our purposes here, he served as lead counsel in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office and chief of the fraud section in the Department of Justice. Uh, He had a long uh, um, career with uh, Bob Mueller. He served as the general counsel for the FBI under Director Mueller and also directed the Enron task force and put lots of the of mobsters behind bars, which which uh, would seem to be the perfect qualification for the <laughs> the investigation into uh, Trump world. Andrew Weissman uh, joins me. Thank you for thank, thank you for your time today, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I, I want to get into a number. I, I, I talked about your book a little bit on the podcast last week, saying that I don't want to be misunderstood here, saying that it was difficult to read, not because it is not incredibly um, riveting and well-written, but because I kept reading portions of it and putting it down and just having to sort of like breathe because um, <laughs> because a lot of it is 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 uh, it, 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 it's stressful, even in a stressful time. But let me start by asking this. The title, Where Law Ends, what does that mean? Tell me what you you meant with that title, Where Law Ends. So the most immediate um, uh, connotation of that is is how I view what's happened to the Justice Department, although there are other ways that it could be interpreted. I think for your listeners, um, it's probably helpful to understand the derivation Uh, John Locke, a British philosopher, um, said, wherever law ends, tyranny begins. And the slightly shorter version of that, where law ends, tyranny begins, is carved into the limestone walls of the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. And it signals the importance of the rule of law to our country. Um, And one of the things I recount in my book is um, dealing with the Department of Justice, particularly Bill Barr's um, reaction to our report, um, as well as the challenges of dealing with the White House in an investigation where the White House has the power to fire you and to dangle pardons to thwart cooperation. So that's the the impetus behind uh, using that as the title. So you begin this book, and this is what I was really referring to when I said that I had to put it down and just like go for a walk. You you begin the book um, really at the end of the investigation where you are driving, I believe you're driving from New York to Washington, D.C. Exactly. And you, you'd wrapped up all of the investigation. You turned in the report. You knew what was in the report. You knew what all the evidence you had gathered. Um, you knew what the conclusions of the report were. And you you are hearing while you're in the car, you hear reports that Bill Barr is about to summarize the report. So why don't you tell that story a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, I still remember clearly what happened on that day, March 24th, 2019. It was two days after we handed in the full 400 
page uh, tome uh, to the attorney general. And um, in the car, I was hearing on CNN that the attorney general had issued a summary of the report. We had all thought that he was going to issue the summaries that we had prepared um, that were part of the report. There's a, a summary for each of the two volumes of the report. And instead, he had issued a his own summary. And then listening to CNN describe it, I was just, at first I was just thinking, well, the, you know, the reporters got it wrong. That that just can't be the case. And when I, I got to Washington, D.C., and I have to admit, I sped up <laughs> considerably because I really wanted to read the letter. Um, I was just, just dumbfounded. And um, I knew at that point um, that I was going to write a book about what happened and to give an inside account of what happened so that third parties and other people who were sort of guessing and speculating or spinning what happened, um, you know, wouldn't have the last word. Um, As you know, the attorney general once said, history is written by the winners. And I thought it was important for history to, in this case, to be written as accurately as I could from my perspective. So from, from the introduction you write, had we given it our all, had we used all available tools to uncover the truth, undeterred by the onslaught of the president's unique powers to undermine our efforts, with the question mark, as proud as I am of the work that our team did, I know the hard answer to that simple question, we could have done more. And this book is the story of the investigation, the choices we made for all to see and judge and learn from. And I guess that's um, that's where most of the focus is. When you look back on it, what opportunities were not exploited? What what doors did you not open? And I guess in, in light of recent developments, the decision not to go into Trump's finances, there's a lot of other things I want to get to, but can we just, let's talk about that because I think a lot of people on the outside assume that that's, that's where a lot of the action was going to be and that we wouldn't get a full picture of the level of corruption unless we went into those finances. So why did the Mueller investigation take a pass on that? When I wrote this book, I I initially was thinking of it in terms of the challenges that we faced from the White House and from Attorney General Barr. And as I wrote it and was thinking about it more, I realized I was going to have to be as clear-eyed as I could about the many, many things that we did well, but also give my opinion with respect to things that I would have at least done differently, um, as well as try and lay out the arguments on the other side so that people can Mm -hmm. understand the discussion. And then to answer your question specifically, um, with respect to finances, um, early on in the investigation, I recount um, uh, a story where we had issued a, a subpoena to Deutsche Bank. It was actually in connection with uh, information we were looking for for Paul Manafort because we were following the money there. Um, cl- you know, classic technique uh, in an investigation. Um, and the White House got wind of it and called up and said, you know, what are you doing? And is, are you investigating the president's finances? As you recall publicly, the president had said that would be a red line. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the director made a decision, Director Mueller, um, I still call Director Mueller because of my days from the FBI. Um, 
made the decision at that point, um, which I, I actually, at that point, I agreed with it. And I think it's a difficult call. Do you, um, do you go ahead with a financial investigation of the president or can you put that on hold um, for the moment while you pursue other things? In other words, is it worth the risk of getting fired? Um, remember at that point, we didn't, we hadn't made the case against Paul Manafort or Rick Gates. We didn't know about the sharing of polling data that, that we were going to uncover later. We didn't, we hadn't documented and, and proved the two really significant Russian cases about hacking and about uh, active measures, um, ways in which our election had been attacked by the Russian government. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that we had not done yet. Um, as we were just starting out. Um, my issue was that we didn't revisit that. And just to be clear, it's, you know, m one of the faults, so it's, it's so that people don't think I'm saying everything I did was, you know, perfect, mm -hmm. is one of my faults was, you know, not raising that and not being um, not that I, you know, have the decisive yeah. voice, but at least not raising that as something that we need to do. Well, one of the themes that really, you know, you you hit on in the book and you've you've, you've touched on it is the 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 constant fear that you might all be fired, and how that shaped the investigation, and there and how you would preserve information. So, talk to me about that a little bit because it was was very clear that you always had kind of a loaded gun aimed at the entire investigation and uh, did, uh, how, how significant was that in the decision to pull punches or, or not ask certain questions or not demand certain testimony? Well, that, I think that issue and also the sort of constant negotiation with the president of an interview, I discussed how the, the group that was doing that would come back and say, oh, let's not do this because it could interfere with those negotiations if we're too bold or do we do take this step, um, which I, I recount how I disagreed with that, that line of thought. Um, so I do think those two things were sort of hanging over us, um, particularly I describe what it's like to uh, work for 22 months, not knowing whether you're going to be um, going to work the next day in the special counsel's office. And it's, it's ironic. There's, you know, been some, uh, discussion in the media of so-called white phones. Um, and yeah, I, my reaction when I, the first time I ever heard of that was reading it in the press and I was thinking, Oh my God, it, the department needs to get out in front of this because everything was backed up and there was such an enormous amount of attention to how are we going to preserve everything? Um, one of our, uh, members had actually been on the Watergate investigation. I wasn't, wasn't uh, that old, but I had read a lot about the Watergate investigation, and we were very concerned about making sure that our data was preserved in a way that it wouldn't disappear. So I recount the various ways that we did that to make sure that it would be preserved for posterity, which is in some I, ways I, is very keeping with this this book, which is really trying to record for history what happened, at least one viewpoint. I thought it was very interesting um, where, where you described one of the techniques to preserve all of it was to put lots of stuff into the um, into the motions for for, um, you know, uh, for uh, subpoenas um, and other things so that they that that the information went into the hands of the judiciary and couldn't be touched by anybody in the Justice Department or the the executive branch. I thought that was interesting. So let, let's just talk about 
what you uncovered. And, and you start off by, as I said before, um, Bill Barr's deceptive, uh, deceptive summary of the report, which you, you are quite uh, very clear that he was lying about all of that. The bottom line headline from that was that the president had been exonerated. That, of course, was what he seized on that there was no evidence that there had been any collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, which is really not true. Because it, for, for, for our listeners who have actually read the Mueller report, you, you know that's not true. And as you point out, that the report itself was a devastating recitation of how the Russian government operatives had infiltrated our electoral process. You talk about the frequency and the seriousness of the interactions that you uncovered between the campaign and the Russians uh, were chilling with the Trump campaign officials both receptive to and soliciting Russian assistance throughout the summer and the fall of 2016. So there is a you know voluminous evidence of that. So remind us again, though, what your conclusion was about the degree of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Sure. Um, so we, of course, did not use the word collusion. That was right. a word that came from the White House and has no legal meaning. We, we thought of this in terms of um, coordination and conspiracy, um, which are you know, more legal terms, but leaving that aside, because that's, that's really uh, not getting at the heart of the matter. Mm. Um, with respect to um, what I call volume one, the first um, thing that uh, Team R, the Russia team, showed was that Russia had attacked us um, in a way that I analogized to Pearl Harbor, obviously not as serious in terms of loss of life, but more serious in terms of its effect on our democratic institutions in terms of being able to vote um, and having that hidden foreign interference. Um, second, they weren't just sowing discord. Um, one of the ways that Barr's letter was uh, misleading is it said, well, Russia just um, interfered in the election um, to sow discord. No, that's not what happened. There was in or the two indictments we brought, it was, and in the report, it's laid out that Russia was actively promoting uh, the candidacy of Donald Trump and trying to suppress the vote um, of those who might support Hillary Clinton, uh, in particular, uh, targeting uh, Bernie Sanders supporters and African-Americans. Um, so that's, that's one huge part of the report and actually something that I think is the lasting legacy um, an important legacy of the special counsel office. Um, second, there was an, an enormous number of communications and efforts between Russia and the Trump campaign to coordinate. Um, the, probably, probably the one that people are most familiar with is the Trump Tower meeting, where Russia, in writing, um, had said that they were uh, they had dirt that they wanted to provide on Hillary Clinton. And this is one of the efforts of the Russia government to assist the Trump campaign. And Don Jr. Uh, responds by saying, you know, he loves it. Um, so you had that in black and white, meaning you had a receptivity on both sides um, to doing this, understanding that it is illegal in America to um, solicit or accept foreign assistance. Um, in an American election. Um, so that was also documented. And then with respect to obstruction, 
our report doesn't give a legal conclusion. We don't put a label on what happened. Mm -hmm. And I describe Bob Mueller's very honorable thinking about that. I personally disagreed with it, but it came from a very honorable place. But we didn't put a label on the obstructive activity. Instead, we laid out the facts so that any reader, um, any future prosecutor, uh, any member of Congress could look at that and see the evidence. Um, one of the ways that Bill Barr um, twisted that particular piece was he, Bill Barr just announced in his summary, I find that there's no obstruction, but right. notably he didn't deal in any way with the facts because that would have led to a, you know, a hideous discussion of things like Don McGahn um, and his testimony. So let's talk about the the obstruction of, of justice, because as you point out, the report lays out in great detail the proof of his criminal conduct, Trump's criminal conduct. But it didn't give a legal assessment of it. You never said outright he'd committed a crime. So th this must have been an internal discussion. How do you frame this? It was very clear that and you correct me if I'm wrong on this. You believe that he had obstructed justice. He had committed a crime. But stop short, the report stopped short of actually saying that or coming to the conclusion, which then left the door open to, for Bill Barr to stand up there that that day and say that he and Rod Rosenstein had simply decided that uh, there was no obstruction of justice. So talk to me about that decision not to come to a legal conclusion when the evidence is was compelling and overwhelming that the president had obstructed justice. Let me make sure people understand Bob Mueller's um, thinking on this, because it really comes from such a noble place. And, you know, a lot of people have focused on, you know, rightly um, ways in which I disagree with conclusions um, that were made by my boss. But let's understand what he was thinking. He was thinking, we're going to say outright um, that the president obstructed justice, but he will not under department policy, because we were part of the Department of Justice, he will not um, be able to be charged and have his day in court. So it's a, you know, we can analogize yeah. it back to what, when Jim Comey gave a press conference denigrating um, uh, one of the presidential candidates, uh, even though yeah. um, there was exactly when there was no um, case that was going to be brought. And he thought this isn't really fair to make that kind of public pronouncement. And by laying out all the facts, other either other prosecutors down the road who would have that ability at some point in the future, they would be able to make their own decision without, um, they don't need Bob Mueller to put a label on it. They will have the evidence, which is the key facts. Or if Congress was gonna take this up again, Congress, um, can look at the facts, um, and we we don't have to uh, put our thumb on the scale um, or weigh in on this. Um, my issue with that is that beca precisely because we were part of the Department of Justice, we were not an independent counsel. We are we were mandated by our appointment order from Bob Rosenstein to give a recommendation to the attorney general. In other words, we were part of the department giving a private report and a private recommendation to the attorney general. The decision of the attorney general, whether to make that public, what to do with it, was not for us. In other words, hmm. staying in our lane was 
doing what the special counsel was supposed to do. Um, you know, it may have been very a very different call if we were operating under the independent counsel rules. So one of the one of the take homes from this is I, I end the book with ways in which I think that the special counsel rules need to be changed. And I try to step back and have people start thinking about how did those rules work in this situation? And did they really, did they pose um, hurdles that we really don't want to have in place? Um, God forbid this happens the next time. And, you know, as, as you know, um, the independent counsel laws came into place because of our experience in Watergate. The special counsel rules came into place in light of our experience with Ken Starr. So we've had this evolution, and I thought this was a good inflection point mm-hmm. for us to think about ways in which the rules did pose this challenge um, to how we did the investigation, um, and also particularly um, the educational function of the special counsel, that there was so little done either by Rod Rosenstein or by us to educate the public about why we were doing what we were doing, what the decisions were, or even announcing at the outset that it wasn't going to be possible under DOJ rules to indict a sitting president, even assuming um, there was sufficient proof. Well, let me just go back to this, the, the, the question of, of how to handle the obstruction of justice, because um, I, what, what, what you wrote here um, that when you talk about staying in the lane, you, you write, but here Mueller was not staying within his lane either. And this too could destabilize the function and the effectiveness of the larger institution in which he was working. He wasn't overstepping his role, but understepping it, which I thought was an interesting formulation that you thought that Mueller was understepping his role, failing to fulfill his explicit mandate to offer a recommendation on obstruction in what was technically an internal DOJ document under the special counsel regulations for fear of what might happen if it became public. So um, you do rather explicitly think that um, you made a mistake. The the group made a mistake by, by not making a recommendation. Uh, That's, that's correct. That's, that was, you know, if it was left up to me, which it wasn't, um, I think that that under the special counsel rules, that we were tasked with making that uh, recommendation to the attorney general. And it should be left to the attorney general how to deal with the issue of should that recommendation be made public or not and what are the pros and cons. Um, And it certainly would have made it harder for the attorney general to to fill the vacuum um, that we we left um, for him. Um, because there would have been a recommendation from us. But the most frustrating part of all of this is as you lay it out in the report and in your book about the evidence of the obstruction of justice, it's hard not to conclude that President Trump's obstruction of justice succeeded. They didn't just attempt to obstruct justice, that in fact, he did obstruct justice, that he took steps that made it impossible to actually find out what was the truth, whether it's the dangling of pardons, whether it is the, you know, the, some of the other stonewalling. So bottom line, did Donald Trump not only get away with obstructing justice, did he succeed in obstructing justice? There are way, many things that you could look at um, on that. So if you look at, let's say, the Don McGahn uh, evidence, which is Don McGahn recounts how he 
um, was tasked with firing us uh, in June of 2017, and that later, um, when this hits the news, the president asks him essentially to lie about it and to create a fake document um, saying that he never did that. Mm-hmm. That would be an instance where um, the president sought to right. um, obstruct, but because but of the work of Don McGahn, refusing, that didn't work. Other instances could include the idea of dangling pardons. We, you know, I talk a lot about, and it's in the report, um, yeah. dangling pardons to Paul Manafort. And obviously Paul who, Manafort who, never Who is central to him. this story here. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously that was the part of the case that I um, was in charge of. So I, I obviously focused on that a lot just because I know it the best. Um, but that's an, a situation where um, he didn't fully cooperate. And one of the things I think it'd be useful for your listeners to think about is what would ever be the legitimate reason to dangle a pardon as opposed to just giving a pardon. In mm-hmm. other words, you can you you could give a pardon and it could constitute obstruction, but and it could also be legitimate. But what's the reason to dangle it um, other than what you're trying to do is to have the person um, think about do I really want to cooperate? Um, and flip, or is the president actually, uh, you know, you referenced my organized crime uh, work. Yeah. Uh, so the president said, you know, to become a rat. And the president said, it, you know, we should almost make that illegal um, to cooperate. Um, <laughs> and what's what the reason to try and thwart that other than to undermine an investigation? Well, I mean, that's a, that's the that, of course, has is, is been the question. And all of this was going on in plain sight, which was one of the extraordinary things about this particular obstruction of justice. So, you know, I, I want, wanted to ask you about this because, uh, you know, Mueller, who was is famously not very outspoken, uh, felt the need to push back on on your book. Um, and you, you, you've seen this, of course. He said it is not surprising that members of the special counsel's office did not always agree, but it is disappointing to hear criticism of our team based on incomplete information. And and there are folks who think that somehow, Andrew, that this is unseemly uh, that you wrote this book or you are airing these differences. By the way, I strongly disagree with that. But I want to give you a chance um, your, to your response to Mueller, obviously unhappy about this book. When I set out to write this, I, I really had to think about sort of what, who I'm writing this for. And I really ended up saying, you know what, I can't just write a simple book that's easy, that says, look at all the terrible things that the White House did, and look at all the terrible things that Bill Barr did, without also holding up a mirror to things that we did well, and also things that I thought um, we could have done better. Um, and I really tried to give um, the you know, my, not only my view, but also the other side, so people could understand the debates, but also understand where I came out. Um, the part that I, I do think is fair from, I mean, maybe it's hard for people to hear criticism, but I actually don't really find that's what the, mm-hmm. Bill, the Bob Mueller I know is, is very good at accepting criticism. The one thing I just want to say is like, you know, I don't purport to have all of the information. Um, there obviously were conversations um, and parts of the case that I didn't investigate personally. So it's possible there are other facts that are relevant and material. Um, but certainly, I think the, the major parts of my book and certainly the things that I investigated, I think 
um, I'm pretty aware of, of um, the salient facts, and I thought it was worth sharing. Well, I, I think it's important. I think it's important for the public to understand what's going on, what what uh, the decisions were made, what questions were asked, and what questions weren't asked, and and I think it was important that people find that out before before the election. So you know, again, stepping back from the specific decisions, it strikes me that one of the overwhelming boy, life in New York is interesting, isn't it? It's like real life, real life intruding here. This is that's yes. That's, I, I also have um, I also have a wonderful cocker spaniel who's one of his traits is that he howls to the pitch of the sirens. Oh. So you may I'm trying to I'm trying to I hear that. Oh, I want to hear that. That's that's oh. fantastic. No, yeah. because I I have I have three dogs who are outside my office right here waiting for me to be done so that we can go play ball and everything. So there's always that chance that they will become impatient and start barking, which I think again is part of real life. But the, yes, uh, the, it, the, the, the howling is cool. Yes, so, and I well, think having a dog keeps you sane or helps keep you sane. Oh, I don't know what we would. Seriously, I, I yeah, times 10. So one of the things that, that comes out of reading your book, and I'm sure you've thought about it as well, is sort of is the asymmetry of dealing with someone like Donald Trump, for whom shamelessness is his superpower, um, on the one hand. And then a Bob Mueller, who is by the book, somebody who is so straight laced. And in some ways, they were very ill matched against one another. I mean, again, Bob Mueller being one of the you know great, great Americans, former director of the FBI. But there was an asymmetry in the rules that he played by and the kind of honor that he thought was important against over against a White House and a president for whom honor was, shall we say, optional. Do you follow what I'm getting at here? I, is that I do. It, I do. You, you guys were playing by a different set of rules than they were playing by. And in some ways, that's why they outplayed you. So I, 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 as I said to people, this is a, the problem of journalists interviewing lawyers, um, which <laughs> my, my answer to that is I sort of agree and disagree. Um, mm -hmm. I think, um, the, the disagree part is it's not uncommon to prosecute cases where the defendants are incorrigible and uh, and seek to and actively obstruct justice. They can tamper, they can do go so far as to tamper with juries. Um, you know, in my early days as a prosecutor, I did lots and lots of New York organized crime cases, and that was that was just a standard operating procedure um, in the cases. Uh, that we were investigating, that that we had to worry about obstruction um, of justice with witnesses and jurors. Um, and that, of course, doesn't mean that we don't play by the rules. So we have to um, just use the tools that we have under the law and obey the law scrupulously um, and just work that much harder um, to uh, make sure that we put together a solid case. So... Um, that asymmetry can happen and we're used to it. Um, where I did have a disagreement here is that I do think that it was important to deal with um, things like the ability of the president to pardon people um, is um, something that I thought we could have dealt with better. I recount, for instance, in the book, um, in, in scenario where 
um, Bob Mueller says, is very, very focused on this issue and says that, look, I want you to coordinate with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, that's a state prosecutor office, because any potential pardon couldn't affect a state case. It only, a federal mm. pardon only works at the federal level. And he said, I want you to coordinate with them, make sure they have the evidence with respect to um, charges that um, Manafort, um, that there was a hung jury, meaning that they're still open. Um, and Manhattan will make its own decision about whether it does or does not want to um, prosecute, but you should feel free to um, give them uh, the information we have. That, by the way, happens a lot where federal prosecutors coordinate with state prosecutors. Um, but his deputy, um, when I alerted him to that, his deputy um, informed me that the deputy attorney general's office had asked us not to coordinate with any state mm-hmm. law enforcement authorities because they didn't want to undermine any potential pardon. And so we had to pull back and we only would give state prosecutors uh, public information, the same information we would give, for instance, to the press if they asked um, for information that was already public in, for instance, a court file. Um, and that's a way in which um, uh, I, I actually disagree with that. I thought that we weren't undermining an actual pardon because there hadn't been any. And all we were doing was um, making it a stronger case for why Paul Manafort should cooperate and couldn't be thinking in his own head, you know, maybe if I uh, don't fully cooperate um, or don't cooperate at all, I can still get a pardon and that will protect me at the federal mm. level. Well, if there was a state case, he, it would be harder for him to think that because that case would go forward. So do you regret not sitting down for a one-on-one in-person interview with President Trump? Um, this is another area where um, I disagree with what we ultimately did. I um, I understand, and it's laid out in our report, the reasons we didn't. Um, but I, my concern here is that his intent was so central to what we were looking at. And you can see it in Bill Barr's own purported summary letter where he purports to know the president's intent and says he was thinking this and he was thinking that. I remember reading it and going, how on God's earth does he know that? I mean, he never sat down for an interview um, and he suddenly surmising his motive. Um, And I was very concerned about the precedent it set for the next time there's a special counsel or an independent counsel and um, the executive says, look, even in uh, this Mueller's special counsel investigation where intent was so central, they were fine with having some written answers, no follow-up, uh, questions and not even written answers on the full investigation. Um, and I, I thought that was not a helpful hmm. precedent for the next time. Did Donald Trump answer the written questions, though? Did he answer them truthfully? Well, Bob Mueller testified that right. he didn't think he he did. Um, and I know there's some people who say there's some ambiguity in his in the in that testimony, but that's certainly the way I. Uh, understood it. And that's the way I understood, leaving aside what Robert Mueller testified to, that's the way I understood 
But everybody must have fully understood. (laughs) Again, I understand this is an awkward question, but I'm guessing both sides fully understood that if you actually had an in-person unscripted interview with uh, or interrogation interview with the president, that there was no way that this president was going to come out of that without perjuring himself. I mean, it's just, there's just no way, which is why I'm guessing his lawyers were just never going to let him sit down. I mean, did you get that? I mean, that they, they, they were going to go, whatever it took, even if you subpoenaed the president, they would have litigated that all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. That was certainly my sense, was that <laughs> the defense lawyers were doing their job. Um, and, you know, I've been a defense lawyer. I'm currently a defense lawyer. That's that's part of the, the work you do. So uh, this is not in any way to denigrate. This is actually to praise yeah. um, their work, which is they make an assessment of what would be in their client's best interest. They give the advice that client in the state case um, took it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm confident it, it would have been litigated. Um, we obviously have a very litigious uh, president. Um, and so I do think it's fair for Bob Mueller to have considered, you know, what that litigation yeah. um, would entail, whether and it how would, long. How, how long it would be, whether it'd be helpful to the public to have all of that um, going on for a long time. I do think those are completely fair factors um, to consider. Um, you know, one of the things that I posit is that that process could have happened sooner. In other words, if you were planning on subpoenaing the president, you don't have to make that decision in March of 2019, two years after our investigation started. You could be teeing that up and doing the negotiations with the president, with the president, you know, sooner because um, as the special counsel, you have the ultimate um, card, which is you can say, no, I'm going to issue the subpoena um, mm. after trying to um, accommodate the presidency. OK, so one last question. Looking forward as opposed to looking looking backward, how concerned are you and how concerned should the rest of us be about what would uh, a, a Justice Department look like and behave like in a second Trump administration? If the president wins re-election and he keeps Bill Barr around, how worried are you? That's such a hard question to answer because I... You could just say very question, My heart <laughs> was sinking okay. um, because, I mean, that really goes to the title of the book. I'm, I worked for the Department of Justice for over 20 years in Republican and Democratic administrations. I know lots of career people, um, and regardless of party, they're extremely upset about seeing the rule of law uh, denigrated in the way it has been in the last few years. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's, uh, it, it is such a dystopian prospect of all of the things that we have done um, Andrew Weissman, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this book. I think it's incredibly valuable. I think it's incredibly important that we find out what's what's going on here. I strongly, strongly recommend the book, and I appreciate uh, how generous you've been with your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>